All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Good to worship God together. Let's go ahead and continue to worship him as we study his word. Go ahead and open your Bible up to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. We're picking up right where we left off last week as we walked through this uh, short but rich, thunderous Old Testament book of the Bible. All right, Malachi 2, I'm going to pick up uh, with verse 10 because that's where we're leaving off from last week, if you'd follow along in God's word. Malachi writes, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. So a little over 27 years ago, I was leading worship in a small church in Plottenville, Louisiana, out in Bayou Country in South Louisiana, which is not far from where my wife's house was, where she was born and raised. And I was leading worship at that church because my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, Joe, had uh, become the pastor of that church. So um, I was leading worship there. Paula and I, we had begun our relationship. We had been dating for about 10 months at that time. We, we knew we wanted to get married. We had talked about that in our future. Um, she didn't know, though, that I had already bought the ring and I had already talked to her dad. And her dad is, was a hardworking farmer, uh, a man of very few words. And so we hopped in his truck to go somewhere, and I popped the question and said, hey, I love your daughter. I would love to marry your daughter. And he smiled and said, of course, and that was the end of the conversation. Uh, <laughs> Paula didn't know that on that Sunday morning, um, after I was, you know, leading worship, that I was about to sing a special. So a special is kind of the thing from the 80s, a uh, thing from the 90s. You'd sing as the offering plates are passed. You know, you would set it up, you'd cue the sound man to turn on the tape or whatever. Uh, and so I was singing an offertory special. It was kind of my go-to offertory special. It was Paula's favorite of all my offertory specials. It was a song called Jesus Christ the Same Yesterday, Today and forever. And there again, as I'm singing that song, Paula didn't know something. What Paula didn't know is while I was singing, the ring was already in my pocket. And it was in my pocket because our relationship was formed right there among that community of believers. Paula had come to faith not too long before that, 
my sister had her eye on this little girl, this small girl, Cajun girl from right here in this town. And my sister called me up and said, so there's a girl named Paula, right? So it had all unfolded right there. We met in that church building, uh, worshiped together. Everybody in that small church knew us. They were a part of our story. They were mentoring us, pouring into us. So I wanted to share that moment with all of them. So I sang the special, ended it, awkwardest transition ever from that song to asking Paula up on stage. And the moment I asked Paula up on stage, the secret was out. Everybody knew. They all started uh, saying things in French because they all speak French, right? So it's heart language. Paula's dad, his second language is English. His first language was French. So they're all saying, Shababé, oh, you know, all these things. So Paula comes up on stage and I, I take a knee and I ask her to marry me and the whole place just erupts and goes crazy. And my brother-in-law, Joe, former LSU lineman, all 6'5", 280 of him is just ugly crying right there on the stage. He comes over in that moment. Paula and I had a, a gospel-centered side hug. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, it was real, it was real. Uh, <laughs> and we walked off stage and didn't hear a word of the sermon. I have no idea what my brother-in-law Joe did after that. And we've thought about that and talked about that moment with our kids and others. What I haven't thought about about that moment until last night was the song. I hadn't really thought about the song. We, it turns out, we promised to marry one another moments after our church reflected on what really is the central statement of the whole Bible. God is faithful. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. When God makes a promise, he delivers on his promise. You could really break up the Old and New Testaments in that way. Mark Dever has done it in his in his three-inch books, the message of the Old Testament and the message of the New Testament. And the name of the volume, the message of the Old Testament is called Promises Made. And the name of the volume on the message of the New Testament is Promises Kept. It's the central story of the Bible that God is faithful. So remember this morning as we dig into this text, the faithfulness of God is never ever in question. Our faithfulness, however, is often another story. Doesn't the New Testament even use that language of when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He is the one who is steady state faithful at all times, immutable, unchanging, no shadow of turning. We, on the other hand, are a bundle of contradictions, right? Sometimes faithful, sometimes not. God's faithfulness, and here's where the tension comes in Malachi chapter two is God's faithfulness shouldn't lead us to be careless about our faithfulness. The better we know the Lord, the more it compels us to pursue faithfulness. Unfortunately, though, that's not what was going on in Malachi's time. Hence, these words have some teeth in them as God addresses his unfaithful, high-handedly unfaithful People. So we have two tragic pictures as we study this text this morning. Number one, breaking faith with the covenant family. That's what we see first. Breaking faith with the covenant family. So you see how Malachi starts with a question down in your Bible? 
And he asked this question. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. Don't all of us have one father? That's the question he starts with. Don't all of us have one father? And I'm not talking about, Malachi's not talking about uh, God as the father of all humanity. He's specifically talking about God as the covenant father of Israel. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, there's this, this language that's used about God as um, rearing Israel as his, quote, firstborn son. You are my firstborn son. God would say in one of the Old Testament prophets, I taught Ephraim to walk. It's, it pictures this tender metaphor, this tender picture of God holding the, the toddler Ephraim and walking him through the wilderness, teaching him with his teetering legs how to walk, and God is the father of his covenant people. Malachi is saying, we all got one father, right? Which means we're all one family. So then that begs the question, verse 10. Then why do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? So if we're familiar with the Bible, this isn't surprising. Here's the principle. The violation of social responsibilities amounted to a violation of sacred responsibilities. So often when God was addressing injustice and unrighteousness in his people, when that unrighteousness was described, it wasn't you guys aren't having proper or long enough quiet times. It wasn't this kind of pie in the sky type of thing. It was you're not treating people well. You don't care about your brothers. You don't care about the poor among you, the outcast among you, the widow, the, the stranger, the fatherless. You, you could give a rip about those people and that's why I'm in your grill. God is constantly addressing that issue with his people in the Old Testament. So we've talked about the, the structure of Malachi, right? How it, it's structured around disputations. Anybody remember how many disputations? Yeah, six. So there's six disputations that are unfolded in Malachi, you can go back and listen to week one and week two if you want to follow up on some of that. But this is going to be kind of technical, but go with me for just a second. So these six disputations have what's called a chiastic structure. All right. So you let me say it. Now let me try to explain it. So a chiasm is where you have mirroring pairs of truths that come to a point. So you have six disputations. It just so happens that disputations one and six are about the same thing. And two and five are about the same thing. And three and four are central and they're about the same thing. So disputations one and six are how they treat the Lord. Disputations two and five are how they treat certain worship practices. So burnt offerings, we saw that last week in disputation two. And then tithing in disputation five. And then that all moves to the central disputation which is what? Number three and four, which deals with how they treat one another. These are, in other words, these are all related and their relationship with God has a lot to do with how they treat one another. So when you put it all together, that chiasm reveals the point that we just looked at. A violation of social responsibilities amounted to a violation of sacred responsibilities. In the Bible, mistreatment of a fellow member of the covenant family is particularly evil. Right, so even in the New Testament, that's not just an Old Testament concept, it's a New Testament concept where, where John talks to the church and he says, hold on, hold on just a second. So here's what you can't do. <laughs> you can't say you love God and hate your brother. 
I gotta call a flag on the play, right? You, because if the horizontal doesn't match the vertical, then there's something wrong with the vertical. So how you treat these people matters to your relationship with God. James says, I wanna talk about similar issues. He said, let's talk about worship, but he doesn't talk about songs necessarily. He's not talking about the trappings of what elements come first and second and third. He says, let's talk about real worship. Let's talk about this horizontal thing. For if someone comes, he writes, into your meeting wearing a gold ring, so blinging it up, right, dressed in fine clothes, and then a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When James wants to talk about worship, he wants to talk about how the people, not necessarily are treating God directly, vertically, but how that's expressed in the way that they treat the people made in his image, sitting right next to them, their brothers and sisters. So, so let's come back to Malachi. So Malachi, we know from verse 10 that their mistreatment of one another on the horizontal plane has created a vertical barrier in their relationship with God. What hasn't, though, been spelled out so far is how this these things are related, how this kind of treachery toward one another that apparently leads to them, verse 12, being cut off from God, how that plays out. That hasn't been clear yet, but it's gonna become clear now. So we move from breaking faith with the covenant family to breaking faith with the covenant partner. Now we're moving from the general, you're mistreating someone, whoever that someone is, and then when that someone comes into focus, it's a wife, it's a covenant partner. Verse 13, this is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask why, right? Don't miss that question because God is basically gonna say, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you why I'm not answering your prayers and I'm not receiving your offerings. Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. So Judah, the people, they don't understand. They're basically just saying, God, I don't understand. So something's not working. Our, suddenly, our religion isn't working because here's how things were supposed to go. We make the offering, you answer our demands slash our humble requests, right? That, that's kind of how this dance has gone for centuries and it's like all of a sudden, you got two left feet. What is going on? It's like you forgot how we're supposed to do this. It's quid pro quo, we scratch your back, you answer this and fend off our enemies, right? That, that's how this thing works. Now bear in mind, that's not just an old thing, that's a very, very modern thing. Religion then and now is man's effort to control God. We did that thing that you love for us to do. Now it's your turn. Manipulating God. And that's why God's response in Malachi, it, it's got teeth in it. It's basically God saying, so do you think I answer prayers while you blow off the covenant that we made together? Israel and God? You think that's how this works? God brings up their treacherous behavior toward their wives and he's saying, 
You think my blessings are gonna keep pouring down on you while you mistreat your wife? That's not how this works. And that's not just an Old Testament thing, by the way. Peter says, you wonder why your prayers are hindered. It's because you mistreat your wife. It's a New Testament concept as well as an Old Testament concept. It's, again, bear in mind what we looked at last week. And it's as though they say, yeah, but we offered the sacrifice. And he says, you mean one-eyed Bessie with, with one, one you know, foot in the grave? Like, that was a shoddy sacrifice. That was roadkill. That was, that was leftovers. And you brought that to me. You think that counts? That, that was an insult, right? God, God is in the business. God is in justice mode right here, right? Basically, God is saying, so you think there's a sacred category and then a domestic category, and I don't look at this one. I just look at this one. You think you scratch my back with burnt offerings and quid pro quo? I bless you with crops and fend off your foes. I'm, I'm your covenant Lord, not your genie in a bottle. Let's just clarify again the nature of the God-Israel relationship. <laughs> God says, so let me be more specific. I was there when you made the vow. I attended your wedding. I was a witness at your wedding when you made the promise and you opened up a, a new a new establishment, a new home, a new family context. You opened up a place to welcome the gift of children who would then be taught my ways. So this is the first point. The witness of marriage is the Lord. See verse 14? Even though the Lord has been a witness, you have acted treacherously against your wife. God is the most honored guest at every wedding. And he's not there to see the dress. <laughs> he's not there to see the flowers. He's there to see the promise. He's there for the vows. That's why he attends. As Christians, we, we need a solid answer, especially in our very fuzzy and confusing time. We need a solid answer to the question, what is a marriage? And one of the ways that we get at answering the question of what is a marriage is by answering the question, when does a marriage begin? What effectuates, what makes a marriage happen? So just think about what doesn't. Marriage doesn't begin when two people fall in love. Feelings come and go, right? Marriage is meant to endure in spite of the rise and fall of feelings. Sex doesn't begin a marriage. Sex is meant in God's covenant to bless a marriage, but it by itself does not make the marriage. Moving in together, living in the same place doesn't make a marriage. There's a quote from Christopher Ashe who writes this about cohabitation. He says, if, if that occurs before a wedding, moving in together, if that occurs before a wedding, it's like starting a job without a contract. There are no secure assurances and you can be fired on a whim. So if that's not what begins a marriage, then what does begin? Marriage begins when two people make a promise in the presence of God to be faithful to one another until one of them stands in front of the coffin of the other one. As of last year, I've now seen my mom do that twice. One of the most powerful sermons I've heard in my whole life is a sermon on faithfulness delivered by the example of my mom. Christianity is a faith 
that holds high marriage, honors marriage. It's a holy thing. It comes down from heaven. It's God's idea. It's a promise, and he's a promise-making and keeping God, and it reflects that. It's like God is looking at the ones who are making the vows, and he says, I do that. You're reflecting my character. My, I make promises that aren't contingent on highs and lows. The witness of the marriage is the Lord. Second, the goal of marriage is the raising of godly offspring. Verse 15, see where I get it from. Didn't God make them one so the two shall become one flesh, right? Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one? The oneness of marriage created by God. What is the one seeking? Answer, godly offspring. So think about what Marriage is not ultimately for. Some things that are blessings in marriages, but it's not unique to marriage. A marriage isn't God's remedy for loneliness. Friendship is, (laughs) right? Jesus had friends. Jesus wasn't lonely. Jesus was fully alive. So let's not talk uh, about marriage as if marriage accomplishes things that are fundamental to being a flourishing human. Jesus never married, but he was not alone. He had companions, he had friends, he was fully human, he was fully alive. So it's not ultimately about, at its essence, about companionship. It's not ultimately about kind of excellent communication and shared values. As much as often books about marriage will talk about shared values as the essence of marriage. It's not about shared values and communicate. Ananias and Sapphira had shared values. That didn't work out so well in Acts chapter five, right? Marriage isn't about our needs being met by someone who masters my love language. Finally, finally you've learned to speak the language that makes sense to me, right? If if we're not careful, and that's not to take away from some of the helps that that can provide, but if we're not careful, marriage and family can easily become a respectable form of selfishness. And there's so much emphasis on this in our culture, find you a man, find you a woman who will do this for you, meet all your needs and so forth. One, one writer says this doesn't reflect a Christian worldview, but it just shows you where that's going, right? I have, he writes, a moral obligation to divorce and seek a new mate if my original one can no longer promote my growth and self-actualization. To which Malachi 2 says, no, that's not what marriage is. It's not what marriage means. Those are not the goals toward which marriage is pointing. Instead, according to verse 15, this is deeply countercultural. Marriage points at the goal of an eager readiness and desire to have children should the Lord bless them and raise them to love the Lord and serve the world in his name. Marriage is aimed at that. Remember the first words to the very first couple? Be fruitful and multiply. I know that word often in Baptist circles, multiply means evangelism. I think in the original context it meant have actual kids. Right? It's not to take away from the metaphorical usage in the New Testament, but it's also not to take away from the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 2. Israel had songs about this. Psalm 127, children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. Welcome them, receive them. It's the story of the Old Testament. So what's the problem then? Verse 11, 
Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. So that means men who were part of God's covenant people are proposing marriage to women who worshiped other gods, not Israel's gods. And marriage, again, verse 15, aims at godly offspring. Well, there goes that, right? Missionary dating isn't a recipe for godly offspring. Nehemiah talked about this reality with exclamation points behind it. And this is about the same time period, Nehemiah and Malachi, 30 years, 40 years apart, perhaps. Here's what Nehemiah says. In those days, I also saw Jews, that's covenant people of God, had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Well, what's wrong with a woman from Ashdod? What's wrong with a woman from Moab? It has nothing to do with where she's from. If she worships the Moabite God, that's what's called a deal breaker. Because how are we going to raise godly children when the stories she's telling them at night are about the rescue of the power of Molech and Baal? How are you going to transfer faithfulness from generation to generation when you don't even have your story right? Got the wrong God in your view and altars to unknown gods and pagan gods in the house. You, you might be thinking, but Boaz married Ruth, who was a Moabite, and that was okay, right? Yeah. But Ruth the Moabite had become a worshiper of the God of Israel. Remember what she said? Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. People from any nation could follow Israel's God. People from any nation could be counted among the faithful in Israel. The laws about not marrying outside Israel had nothing to do with prohibiting uh, interracial marriage, if you will, and everything to do with prohibiting syncretism. Nehemiah reminds them of their history. He says, hey, let's just talk about all the things that went wrong when Solomon started marrying all these other women. And it's like, you know how guys sometimes will talk about how they have a type. Solomon had a type, non-believers. <laughs> people who didn't worship God. He just found himself hopelessly attracted to people who didn't worship the covenant God. And Nehemiah reminds them in chapter 13, missionary dating and missionary marriage thing doesn't head good places. But the problem was Solomon's wives and his concubines were better missionaries than he was. He didn't turn them to his God, they turned him to theirs. This passage can be confusing, right? So, because it sounds like God is addressing two different things, but they're actually related. It sounds like on the one hand, God is saying, you're breaking your covenant with me. The covenant I'm talking about is a breach between you and me. You're marrying the daughters of a foreign God and it's profaning my sanctuary. This is a me, you problem. And then it sounds like God is saying, you're breaking, the, my primary beef is you're breaking your covenant with your partner, your wife. But then you put it together and you realize when God says, you're breaking your covenant with me and profaning the sanctuary by marrying the daughter of a foreign God, and then you're divorcing your wife, you start to realize, wait, the guy who wants to marry the daughter of the foreign God is already married? Yes, he's already married. That's why divorce shows up in verse 16. He's gotta get rid of his wife of the covenant, his, the wife of his youth, so that he can go court the nations. They divorce the wife of their youth, a woman of faith, so they can marry a woman who doesn't worship God. And now the marriage has no interest in godly offspring since, the, again, the kids are gonna be reading stories 
about the rescuing power of other gods. Or in the modern day, the rescuing power and the gospel of self-determination, the gospel of sexual progressivism, whatever it might be, the, the pagan offerings of the day. When the ancient song of Israel laid this beautiful vision out before God's people, Psalm 78, they sang themselves deep into this practice. He, Psalm 78, established, that is God, established a testimony in Jacob. God set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach to their children so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know. They were to rise and tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God. That's three generations of believers. We told the kids, the kids told their kids, and the faith keeps running transfer of the faith from generation to generation. Brook Hills, that song was sung not just by nuclear families in Israel. It was sung by the entire covenant people of God. Why? Because it takes all of us, and now I'm talking to you, Brook Hills, it takes all of us believers to raise a generation that loves Jesus Christ, that follows him as Lord, that treasures the good news about Christ that raises a ch children and generations in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. H hear this, one of the most rewarding things we can do, one of the most promising things we can do as a church is to unite our prayers and our efforts so as to transfer the faith to our children and to our children's children. That's called winning the long game. That's called wisdom for generations, foresight, right? The goal of marriage is godly offspring. Next, the bane of marriage is hatred and violence. So earlier translations of the Bible used to translate verse 16, God hates divorce. Um, it's a poor translation. You can't get there from the original language, which is why almost no modern translation, faithful modern translations translate it that way today. Here's the thing, even if it were a faithful translation of that verse, we would still need to do work. We would still need to situate that language in the context of Malachi's words. What circumstance is he talking about? And even then we're not done because then we have the job of squaring that statement with the words of the Apostle Paul who spoke about divorce being permissible, i.e. not hated by God in cases of abandonment. Then we'd have to square that with Jesus, who spoke about divorce being permissible, i.e. not hated by God in cases of sexual immorality. So we got work to do. It's not like there's just these three words that put together this flat understanding of what God says about this complicated issue. And it is a complicated and painful topic to address in any room. Can I just say, a lot of people who have been through divorce the last thing they need is a pylon. Some, some marriages are broken through the damaging impact of one party at the other party's expense. That's not always the case, but the mere possibility of it should make us sensitive, not ham-fisted, with this highly difficult and sensitive issue. The Southern Baptist Theological Seminary produces a journal called the Journal of Theology. They've been doing it for years. It's a magnificent resource. 
I regularly consult it because it weighs in and it's some of the most careful scholars in the world weighing in on very difficult themes. And there was one on Malachi in 2016 and I dug it up and here's a quote from that article. The Old Testament law allowed for divorce and it provided protection for women where an Israelite man had to write a certificate of divorce for his wife, which would allow for her to remarry and to be provided for, Deuteronomy 24. The only legitimate grounds for divorce in the law were adultery, Deuteronomy 24, or failing to provide food, clothing, and conjugal love, Exodus 21. The situation in Malachi's day was that men were divorcing their wives without legitimate grounds, and this is considered an unjust or violent act. Now, that statement should in no way diminish the high value we place upon marriage and the permanence of marriage it should do just the opposite. In fact, it's because the men of Judah treated marriage so lightly that God thunders so loudly in Malachi chapter two. God is saying, when you disregarded the covenant with your wife and sent her away, on the way to marrying outside the covenant, you acted with injustice. You put on the clothes of the violent is the language that's used there. The clothing of injustice, you wrapped yourself in it. It was brutal what you did when you sent her away for no cause. And for those who hadn't done it or hadn't done it yet, the admonition is very clear in verse 16. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and don't do what we were just talking about. Do not act treacherously. It's like God is saying, you know, a minute ago, all the men of Judah were, were in my ears. They were bombarding heaven with their prayers and their sacrifices. They were, you see the language, covering the altar with tears. And God says, it's crocodile tears. I see right through. It's not true repentance. They, they start saying, where's the God of justice? Why aren't you answering our prayers? Why aren't you fending off our enemies? And God says, you're looking for the God of justice? Oh, trust me, he's here. It's my justice that's making me sound like this right now. Your treacherous treatment of your wife is a justice issue. Right? For those who hadn't done this, there's this admonishment. Watch yourselves and don't imitate the same thing. Come at it from the other angle. So, church, when you see ordinary faithfulness in marriage between one man and one woman and you applaud it, you are doing something increasingly Countercultural, radically countercultural. And who knows but that churches might be the only places where you can hear the sound of the applause of faithful marriages in coming days. And maybe not even all churches. But by the grace of God, let's do it. Let's hold marriage high. Let's hold the promise high. And the beauty of all this depends on the priority of faithfulness. So just so that we can have some practice in doing that countercultural thing and applauding faithfulness in marriage, I want to ask some people to stand. So if you have been married for 20 years or more, would you stand? Praise God. Praise God. Yes. Remain standing.
Okay, 30 years or more remain standing. Look at you. Praise God. Yes. All right, let's go 40. 40 years or more remain standing. Awesome. All right, 50 years or more remain standing. Wow. Woo! Mm. Let's go five year increments now. <laughs> Let's go 55. Yes. Is this the only couple in the room standing? How many years? 58. Hey. Woo. Mm. Teach us. Well done. You know what marriage is a picture of? It's a picture of the gospel. That God set his affection on a bride he called the church. And here's where things get interesting, is she had a sordid past. She had been unfaithful, a little bit like Hosea's wife in the Old Testament. She had also been mistreated. But Jesus Christ laid down his life to make her his own. The, the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. God presides over both. The wedding at the end is for everyone who trusts in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who are a part of his people, his church. We will one day be joined to him in forever matrimony and the joy will be infectious. The streets will run with dancing. There will be a marriage supper of the lamb, the table bending under the bounty of God's mercy. We will feast together. And even those of us who have struggled to be faithful to him in our Christian lives, our hearts prone to wander as we sing about in the great hymn. And yet his promise remains that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What, what good news this is. There's no failure of ours. There's no experience of pain that God cannot redeem if we will entrust ourselves to him again. 